This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to all of you on behalf of uh, the Graduate School of Management at UC Davis. Um, our alumni, our students, our friends, business partners, campus colleagues, thank you for joining us tonight for the first UC Davis Graduate School of Management's Dean's Distinguished Speaker event of the 2016-17 year. Uh, I have joined only about three and a half months ago. Uh, until about two weeks ago, I was telling you that I joined 90 days ago, 92 days ago, and so on. Now it's coming to months. Uh, hopefully it'll be years at some point. But uh, it's been a very exciting journey for me. And uh, a tradition uh, of this nature is something even more interesting to me because it's rare that we would have uh, wonderful people who have accomplished so much come and tell us the story of how they have done it, what they have done, about a company that we all respect as well. Um, I'll speak more about uh, our, our guest in a few minutes, but uh, wanted to tell you also about some great things that are happening at GSM. Uh, we are going to launch our Masters of Science in Business Analytics in August, uh, September of 2017. It won't be on Davis campus per se because it's more of a weekend type of program, but is oriented towards uh, uh, working professionals. It will be offered in San Francisco, and uh, it is what we call STEM qualified, which means that people who go into the program will have uh, the opportunity to continue to work in the United States for three years rather than the one year that they normally get after the MBA program. So we're really excited about the program. Uh, we have actually had some tremendous progress made in the executive education arena. We have uh, 25 programs uh, <coughs> slated to be offered in 2017. Um, there is uh, good news about our rankings. We continue to be a top 50 program all the time and climbing as we go along in the next few years to potentially a top 25 program. So I'm saying this openly so you can hold me to it and then make me work harder. Uh, but that's what we should be doing. Uh, in the process, though, one of the nice things that we have observed is that uh, the overall ranking may be what it is, but our faculty uh, in the Economist and Global Rankings have been ranked number 10 in the country. And our overall placement uh, from this school uh, was ranked number 11 in the country. It goes to show those pockets of brilliance that we have in the college where people work awfully hard, and you have the right talent to teach you what they teach in the classroom. So kudos to those people who have made this happen. Uh, we are actually spending a lot of time talking about the positioning of our MBA program. We spent uh, much of the afternoon with a wonderful group of people who are advising us as part of the Dean's Advisory Council, um, who talked about potentially opening up some tracks for our MBA students in certain industries. We are at a point now where I'll come back to our students and present it to them and get their feedback as well before we just go ahead and start uh, implementing the strategy. Uh, tomorrow is an interesting day. Uh, there has been a lot of work done by Chris Dito and her team, along with uh, Leanne Hartman. Uh, what uh, uh, just came up as an idea just became a reality, which will be reflected tomorrow in the function. The decision was made to go around and see if uh, we can have our alumni uh, come back to us and offer internships to our students. And as we reached out to alumni, the generosity of those alumni has been more than surprising. It's been just so heartening to go through that process. I think a third of the first-year class will have their internship done by tomorrow, which is just an unbelievable statistic for GSM. So we're very 
proud of that and thankful to alumni who've made that possible. And tomorrow is when this will happen. Now, <clears throat> coming back to tonight, um, we are pleased to have Matthew Johnston, CEO of HM Close, as our distinguished speaker. HM Close specializes in breeding, production, and commercialization of vegetable seed varieties for professional growers. Created in 2008, HM Close was merged with Claus Vegetable Seeds in France and Harris Moran Seed Company in the USA into a business unit as part of Group Limagrain, an independently owned cooperative run and operated by farmers. It's a very different business structure from what you guys have been looking at in classes in the business schools. So it will be very interesting to learn more about this structure. HM Close is one of the top five vegetable seed companies in the world and has a culturally diverse workforce of over 2,200 employees globally. With over 2,000 varieties in more than 20 vegetable crops, HM Close breeds vegetables for global markets and farmers markets in more than 30 countries. And being a vegetarian, this is especially good news for me. So. <laughs> HM Close has deep roots with the UC Davis campus. The company has partnered with the university on many projects, most recently moving out of its traditional agriculture field to establish the UC Davis HM Close Life Science Innovation Center to help researchers take their innovations out of the lab and into the world, a theme that UC Davis has been seeing more and more of. And Dushant, you're here probably. Yes, he's spearheading that effort as well. They have deep relationships with the Seed Biotechnology Center and Department of Plant Sciences, and the UC Davis Office of Research honored HM Klaus with this year's Innovative Community Partner Award. HM Klaus executives have served on the Graduate School of Management's Dean's Advisory Council and have hired our MBA students and sponsored MBA consulting projects as well. I'm very proud to announce that this year we will offer two first-of-their-kind campus awards and scholarships established by HM Klaus. The HM Klaus Agricultural Business Awards for undergraduate students from the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences who are pursuing a minor degree in technology management at the Grad School of Management, and one HM Klaus Agricultural Business Fellow to recognize an MBA student who is pursuing a career in the agriculture industry. We're grateful to Matthew and his team for their support. Tonight we have the good fortune to hear from Matthew, a passionate and dynamic leader. He will share how he has scaled up in the seed business by encouraging his team to think global while acting local. He has fostered a workplace environment that values teamwork, collaboration, transparency, and accountability throughout every business function. And uh, we were uh, chatting for about a half an hour to 40 minutes over dinner tonight, and uh, we were so impressed with the views that he espoused in terms of how much he cares about global hunger, the problems that the world is facing, and how we have to solve those problems. And it's not just about making profits that should be the business's uh, mission. It was very, very interesting to listen to that perspective. And, and, and I hope you'll enjoy the same thing, too, as you talk about uh, thinks he does. Uh, Matthew has his bachelor's degree from the University of Wyoming and his MBA from UCLA. Before taking the helm at HM Klaus in 2012, he was a deputy CEO where he helped manage the successful integration of Harris, Moran, and Klaus. Welcome, Matthew, for everything that you've done for us as a company and your colleagues as well. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dean. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, this works. Thank you, Dean Unova. It's a real pleasure to, to be here. Um, 
we've been working with uh, UC Davis for a long, long time. Uh, and up until several years ago, it was primarily around research. And so every seed company and most of the agricultural companies that are here in and around Davis have, have that longstanding affiliation. And I think our company, if you're familiar at all, we have a, a research station out on Mace Boulevard where we uh, operate a, a farm and a research station on a couple of hundred acres of land, so we typical farming research. And that dates back, I think, to about the 1950s uh, with one of the legacy owners of our company. So we go back a long way with, with UC Davis, but it's only been in very recent years that we were able to uh, begin to collaborate and get to know the Graduate School of Management. And... I regret that it took us uh, 50 or 60 years to do that. And uh, one of the reasons I regret that is because the affiliation, the association, and the interaction that we have had and the things that we have benefited and received from that association with the GSM have really been wonderful for our company. And it's not only the, the young people that we might have been able to attract and hire from the school but just the interaction and the opportunity for our people to be so close and have uh, the, the opportunity to exchange and have that uh, intellectual uh, stimulation that occurs on a university campus that doesn't always uh, happen inside our four walls. We're great, grateful for that, and uh, we encourage our organization and our colleagues to make every effort and take advantage of every opportunity to continue that. Uh, collaboration. When we look at the makeup of the students and the, and the people uh, attending uh, the GSM, and I mentioned this over dinner tonight, it's very exciting and it's very impressive to see the level of diversity and the various backgrounds and, and uh, places from which you're able to attract people to come here and study. And these are people that can choose to go many, many other places. And the fact that when we look at the, the makeup of the, of the Graduate School of Management uh, and see the diversity that you have, uh, you should be very proud of that. And I'm sure that you're all going to take advantage of that. We're a company that values diversity. It's really important for us uh, as an organization. And I'll try to touch on some of the reasons why that's important to us. It's, uh, it's not a uh, corporate social responsibility initiative. It's how we do business. And uh, so we, we value and we appreciate when we see it in other places. Um, I was asked to talk tonight when we, when we came up with the theme that we we're going to talk about. Uh, we settled on this notion of scaling up in the vegetable seed uh, business. And I was, through the week, uh, ran into various people in the hallway at the office, and a few of the comments from people and the questions they asked, well, okay, what is this uh, you're going to talk about? It tended to be the standard, uh, well, we're going to talk about uh, standard processes and uh, maybe some accreditation of our laboratories and facilities, and how do we roll out our ERP system so that we can have the same methodologies around the world. And what I told uh, several people, as you may be surprised uh, at the kinds of things that I may talk about, uh, when I think about the scalability of our business, and uh, it's 
another perspective that I hope we'll leave you with that may encourage a little bit of thinking, uh, especially those of you that are uh, at that point in your lives where you're, you're in the program here and either going to finish this year or, or, or will uh, next year, and you begin to reflect on the things that you're going to do and, uh, and the things that you're going to pursue. So I have two real objectives here tonight. First, I always take the occasion to shamelessly promote uh, our company and the things that we do, and I won't let you down uh, on that point. But the other thing I want to do, and we, we, we tend to like to do this when we have the, the opportunity, is I want to talk a little bit about the context of our business and our industry and the, the space that we're in. And for those of you that are either studying, whether it's in the graduate school of management, maybe people from, uh, from other colleges and, or other companies and, uh, and space, or even my own colleagues from HM Close that may be here tonight, I want to challenge you to the issue, which I consider to be one of the very important issues of our time, of how we're going to feed the planet in the next 35 years. And that's not the purpose of my talk, but I'm going to take advantage of, of this to mention and, and to discuss. There are going to be nine billion people on this planet within another 30, 35 years. That's two billion more than we have today. And we already struggle with feeding the seven billion people that we have today. So that question of how you're going to feed the next two billion is a really, really important one. In addition to that, global economic growth is projected at roughly 3% a year over that period of time. And there's a lot of talk and a lot of speculation that that might actually lead to nearly eliminating what we call absolute economic poverty. And why that's important beyond the the norm, but for us, why that's important is as people move from absolute poverty to something better, and if they move from something better to something even better, the first thing they want to do is eat better. They don't start thinking about buying a Mercedes-Benz till much, much later in the cycle. And so as we have to think about feeding that incremental 2 billion people in addition to maintaining our nutrition and health standards for the 7 billion that here, we also have to think about the entire world having a better economic condition, and that will lead to a demand for better and more food which places even additional burden on, on our food systems. To feed those 9 billion people, it's estimated we're going to have to produce about 70% more food in the next 35 years than we do today. And we're only going to expect to increase the amount of cultivated land by 5%. And then on top of that, we're going to expect to have diminished resources from which to grow that food, and that's True whether we speak about water or fertilizer or other crop inputs. So you start adding up these layers of challenges on us, and my challenge to you and those of you in that generation that are going to be coming out of school, whether it's the College of Agriculture or whether it's the business school, these are going to be fundamental challenges that, as a society, your generation has to solve. 
To make matters even more complicated, 85% of those 9 billion people will not live in the West. There's only going to be 15% of those 9 billion people in the really, really developed West. So, some studies suggest we already produce enough feed, food to feed 10 billion people. I'm not sure that's true. But if it was, and if it were that simple, then America and the West could simply export and feed the world. And we don't. And if we don't today, it's not likely we're going to when there's 9 billion people here. So the challenge is not just about growing more food. And so you're not going to go to the College of Agriculture and find the solution in science alone. And it's going to cut across a lot of systems. So that's a context why I want to talk about my company and our space. But I want to talk about it in the context of something a little bigger than we are and to share with you a little bit about why we at HM Close and I would contend most people in our space get up every day and do what we do. So who's HM Close? We are, as, uh, as you've already heard, we are a relatively small company. We'll do about $400 million in sales this year. Uh, I heard 2,200 people, depending on how we count people. We're somewhere between 22, 23, and 2,800 people uh, in, in our organization. We're living in about 30 different countries. We have legal com companies and entities in, in 20 countries. Uh, we're part of that French Farmers Cooperative, which is a very unique uh, shareholding. It makes us a little bit uh, unique in our space. Globally, our parent company is the second largest vegetable seed company in the world. HM Close is part of that. And individually, we are probably the number five vegetable seed company uh, in the world. But we're also part of this ecosystem in and around Davis that is the seed uh, industry. And those of you that are familiar with uh, Seed Central, it's an important initiative that uh, is... Uh, is uh, part of uh, UC Davis and, and others. Uh, you're living in the middle of what I would consider the center of the universe for the seed industry, not just vegetable seeds. And so as you think about your future and your choices in your life and your career, I only want to encourage you to think about agriculture. And I was delighted to hear at dinner tonight that the Graduate School of Management is, is looking and trying to find ways to expand the outreach of the program at the GSM with, with agriculture. We want to we play a part in helping that. And uh, collaboration, you heard, is, a, is an important attribute of our culture. And uh, we think it's a wonderful thing uh, to see, see that uh, our space might become uh, more visible to those of you that are going to Davis uh, and the Graduate School of Management. So, a word or two about our industry to give you some orientation. Globally, uh, we're a small company uh, by corporate standards. Our space and our industry is a relatively small space. The global vegetable seed market is somewhere between 5 and $6 billion dollars. It's not a big industry. It's, uh, it's what you might call a, a niche industry. 
But to make it even more, uh, I would say, challenging is it's extremely fragmented. We have lots and lots of small revenue streams in lots and lots of places. And that's true not only for HM Close, but every company in our space. So you might ask the question, why, why is that important? Uh, revenue is revenue. The, the challenge for us and why that's important is our revenue comes when we sell a product like anybody else does. But our products are different wherever we may have to go. And so many of you have traveled and by uh, the looks of the CVs that I saw in the Graduate School of Management, knowing some of you have traveled a lot. So think about the places that you've been and what you have eaten when you've been in those places. And I give you sort of a, a, an example. The tomato that you're eating here when you're in Northern California is not the same tomato that people in France are eating. And the tomato that people eat in China is not the same tomato as people in Turkey. And so what that means for us, we've got to create products that are unique for the cultural aspects of the people who we serve, which are the farmers around the world and who serve people like all of us with the food that we eat. So for us to manage our global business, we have to have products almost like a bespoke product in every crop that we work with, in every country, and in many places, even in very diverse markets within a country. So to reach that $400 million in sales, we're going to market nearly 2,000 commercial products this year. And I saw some interesting backgrounds uh, when I reviewed uh, the, the student uh, makeup at GSM, and I see people from interesting places like Procter & Gamble and Driscoll's, uh, Morningstar Farms. So if I put into context what I know of companies like that, based on our revenue, which is a relatively small $400 million, 2,000 commercial products is something that I would imagine at that revenue base, Procter & Gamble would... Uh, have changes in their marketing organization if a product manager ever suggested that many products in their lineup. Where we're fortunate is we work in a relatively valuable business. Gross margins can be high, and EBITDA margins can be rather interesting. And you could expect that a company like HM Close could easily deliver EBITDA margins above 30% uh, on an annual basis. So when you begin to think about the value in our space and the importance of what we do, there's a cost to doing business when you have that many products and have to go to that many places. And we've been able to see as an industry uh, an environment where we're rewarded for, for that kind of work. It's an R&D-driven business. We invest nearly... Uh, nearly 16% of our annual turnover in research. We talked tonight at dinner about uh, some similarities of pharmaceutical business. Uh, one of the similarities is the amount of research that goes into our space, not quite at the level of the pharmaceutical industry, but in terms of a portion of revenue, much, much larger than, than, than most industries that you'll, uh, that you'll see. And so the market itself is fragmented, but so is a competitive landscape. 
the top uh, three companies in our space probably uh, generate about a third of the global revenue in our space. Top companies are familiar to you, Monsanto, Syngenta, uh, and our company, Limagon. So, at HM Close, we talk a lot about the notion of scalability and sustainability. And the, the argument that we have made for a long time is that uh, in our space, no one has yet proven that scale creates value in the vegetable seed space. And we have examples uh, where uh, there has been scale that was assembled. Uh, example at Monsanto and Syngenta, wonderful companies, wonderful people. They do great science. They do great work. But they haven't yet proven that the scale they created by assembling all the pieces that they have has created financial value. And at HM Close, we're committed to proving that scale can create value. So when you saw the title of my talk, I go back to some of the hallway discussions I've had this week. Uh, I'm not here to talk about uh, scalability by uh, leveraging principles that you're probably studying here at the Graduate School of Management. Uh, those are really important, and we do things uh, like every company does to find efficient ways of working. But it's my contention that rolling out standard processes and common ERP platforms, ISO certification and the areas where it's important uh, are necessary but don't necessarily lead to scalability that creates value. So in an environment where you have a really, really fragmented market, you have really, really fragmented products and product requirements from your customers, how, how do you scale this when you've got so many small revenue streams in so very many places? We have a statement that we uh, use, and you can call this our, our mission statement, but it's to build trust with our farmers throughout the world by providing quality and innovative vegetable seed products that meet their unique and local requirements. Now, that may sound fairly innocuous, but it really speaks to the need that we have to be able to deliver a product to them that is built for their specific needs. And I think this is key to the scalability of our company. And how you get there may be different from one country to the next and from one company to the other. Our company chooses to build that value proposition around the notion of trust with our customer. And another line of discussion we had at dinner tonight was in this whole world of differences in our space, uh, we, do, we sell seed in more than 100 countries. We have employees in more than 30. Biggest country of revenue for us is the United States, and it's less than 15% of our turnover. So there's not a single place on earth that we can say, if we win here, if we're successful here, it will carry us everywhere else. We have to be pretty good everywhere we go. Because nowhere we go is big enough to sustain what we do. And so one of the things that we see with all the differences around the world in language and culture and, and, and pr 
products and horticultural practices and market needs, we consider our customer to be the farmer who plants our seed. And we see a lot of similarities around the world with farmers. We have a lot of differences, but there's a lot of common traits with farmers around the world. And so one of the ways in which we attempt to build trust with our customer is we recognize, respect, and appreciate the fact that a farmer is a very independent entrepreneurial business or business person. And when you go to sell seed to that farmer down the street in Woodland, California, they don't want to do business the French way. They may not even want to do business the St. Louis way. They want to do business on their terms. And so the way we describe this is, in France, we want to do business the French way. When we're in Mexico, we want to do business the Mexican way. When we're in America, we want to do business the American way. And that, in addition to the highly fragmented product offering that we have, really creates a lot of stresses on our organization. So how do you do that? And how do you build scale in our business? And it would be my contention that we build that scale through culture. which is not a simple thing to do. Among the things that we do, you heard earlier, one of, the, one of the ways we describe some of the values and principles of our company, we focus a lot on an acronym that our uh, organization uh, just says is uh, TACT, T-A-C-T. So teamwork, accountability, collaboration, and transparency. These are values of our company that are really important to us, and they feed into the culture that, that we have. We have a very participatory management uh, uh, decision-making process. And the way we describe it in our business terms is we want to take decisions as close to the customer as we can possibly get. And in a company like ours, it's global. You can't do everything in front of the customer. So we've got to be clever about the decisions that we can take uh, locally and, and those that we need to take uh, somewhat uh, further upstream. But ultimately, the objective is to find the right balance that allows us to serve the needs of our customer, the farmer, as well as those of our shareholder, because we're managing their money and, and their assets. And doing that requires that we be agile, responsive, mindful, and somewhat flexible. And that is not the typical description of scalability in a company. So we've got a global approach to managing our business. Some of our crops are global. Some of them are very, very specialized and very, very local. And so our global approach is really intended to try and leverage our people and those products or programs that can be globalized or good uh, Efforts can be leveraged across more than a single market. We can't duplicate every function in our company, nor every activity, and nor every task. So we've got to find those leverage points that we can use to create that scalability and the sustainability of our business. So examples would be uh, one that's close to home. We can't duplicate 
our work in molecular biology every place where we have a research station. So those are the kinds of things that we need to leverage and, and, and build in a common place. Several other aspects of, of, of research would be, uh, would be other examples. ERP uh, platforms, we, we, we work on common IT systems around the world. So the things you're going to find in, in any organization. But we got very specific and significant differences in those product requirements. And those often require different kinds of decisions, different kind of efforts locally. Hence, we have this notion that you see and read in all of our uh, materials and organization, we've got global reach and local touch. So from a perspective, to those of you that might think about our space or our company, what, is, what does HM Close have to offer? And what would that look like? So we talked about teamwork earlier. That's a very important attribute of our company. Why, why is that important? We had to find a way to have some kind of a competitive value proposition or a way to distinguish ourselves from others in our space. And you know the competition we have. Companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, Bayer. These are wonderful companies. Lots of resources. Lots of smart people. Lots of hardworking people. They're as passionate as we are. They believe as much as we do in the work that they're doing. They're bigger than us. Sometimes they can go faster and they can go further. So how do we distinguish ourselves as an organization? And how we differentiate? And this goes back to that notion of trust with our customer and the flexibility and the uniqueness of our culture locally. So I would argue that culture matters very much for a company like HM Close. We've talked about the size of our company, 2,800 people around the world, more than 30 countries. Somebody said at dinner tonight from, from our team, you join our business, whether it's our company, our space, you're going to travel. It's what we do. So there's a huge amount of international exposure for you in our company. And that's true whether you're in a position where you're going to move around. We do a lot of expatriations. Uh, awful lot of people in our organization have lived and worked in other places. Many have worked in a number of places. We do short-term assignments in places because not everybody can move and go live in another country. But often many people can go stay six or eight weeks somewhere, and, and we do a lot of that. We travel incessantly. I can't think of another industry that travels like we do. And when we travel, we really see a place. This is not a consulting practice when you, when you travel to a place, you land in the central city and you go from the airport to the uh, convention center, the hotel, you do your meeting, you go home, and you tell everybody, I went to Turkey. It's not what we do. You want to see a country and you want to see a culture? Go see their food. And this is when you really begin to see what the world is like. And what that leads to and what we look for, and all this builds up, how do we scale this organization? It's through what I would call cultural competency. And we need people with curiosity and interest and appreciation for the diversity. So to go back to 
One of the points I made at the very beginning, when I look at the makeup of the people who are choosing to go to the Graduate School of Management at UC Davis, I'm thrilled to see the kind of diversity that you have in this organization. That's already a great starting point, and I'm sure that many of the people coming out of the GSM already are culturally competent. And I would encourage you, in a world that is shrinking and maybe struggling a little bit with this notion of a global uh, environment, and at a time and place where so many people are frightened and thinking about turning inward and, and, and keeping people away from what we do and not letting others in, this notion of cultural competency, in my opinion, is very important for us as a company, but it's also very important for us as an industry, and I would argue very important for us as a society. So I want to close with just a couple of uh, comments around the complexity of our business. It's a really complicated business. It's not rocket science. It's not more difficult than any other space. But one of the things, if you seek an environment and an industry that is really complicated, for a little $400 million company, we have a lot of moving parts. And that can be very exciting for people who have an interest in trying to challenge themselves and work in a really uh, unique space. We have our challenges like everybody up. Scaling up is difficult. How do we leverage the diversity that we have in an organization? And how do we retain the agility that we may have today as a $400 million company? But how do we retain that as we get bigger? So today we're a Franco-American company. Our roots are in France and the United States. But we're moving very quickly to a much broader base than that. One-third of our people are in Europe. One-third of our people are in the Americas. And one-third of our people are across Asia. In our management of the organization globally, nearly one-third of our people around the world are not French, and they're not American. And eight years ago, when we started this project called HM Close, you could not say that. So it's very exciting to see that evolution. We're seeing our company scale up. We have a long way to go. We need help. So to summarize how we scale this organization up, I think we have to be culturally competent. And we have to nurture and develop that global reach with our global touch. So I thank you for your time and appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. Thank you. So in case you have some questions, uh, Mr. Johnston, this is a good time to ask. About 15 minutes, probably. Okay. <clears throat> yes, sir. Hi, my name is Nikesh, and I'm a second year MBA candidate here. So my question is, when you, when you go overseas and you are in 100 countries, what challenges you see uh, not in terms of feeding people, but in terms of different food varieties, and how, how do you accomplish, uh, uh, provide them? So I'll try, to sum, how do we, I'll try to summarize the question. How do we develop product that meets that local needs? So I already mentioned some of the things that we're a research-driven company. So it, it, it starts with our investment in research, and I have several colleagues in the room that are uh, far more versed than I in, in what all that means. But uh, we have... All of the tools that you're going to find in 
all the companies in our space, and we deploy all the all the uh, uh, current and modern uh, tools for for development. But you have to first start with basic genetic material that is somehow adapted uh, to that uh, that market. You're not going to go to India where they may want a sponge gourd or a bitter gourd and try and sell them a uh, California tomato or a, a, a American slice or cucumber. They have a very specific requirement. So you have to have, first of all, the genetic uh, base to, to begin to work with. From there, you've got to do basic plant breeding, and that begins to require feet on the ground to do the, the, the development work. So our scientists and our breeders will do uh, what we would call uh, the, the genotyping work. So that's on our research station. Sometimes it is in that location or close to it. Sometimes it could be far away. It depends. But then you also have to be sure that that product is adapted to the market in which you're going to sell it and a farmer's going to grow it, and that's the phenotyping work that we do. And now you begin to move out of our research organization into our sales and marketing group, and you have to have people on the ground to do this work where you're, you're developing products in close collaboration with the farmer who's going to plant your seeds. And you've got to do that in 100 countries uh, around the world. And we breed uh, more than 25 crops, uh, nearly 2,000 commercial varieties. And you multiply that uh, footprint across all the countries that we make. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge endeavor. And every seed company operates in, in relatively similar fashion. Some do it better than others. But it's a very costly uh, effort. And... Uh, there's a uh, need for lots of people and lots of different uh, talents and temperaments and convictions to help us uh, do this work. Thank you. Hi, uh, Steve Stearns, first year MBA. Um, thanks for being here today. Uh, I was just wondering what your opinion is on how... Uh, what, what's the future of GMOs in terms of feeding the world and how big of a role transparency will play in that, in that sector? Thank you. Okay, so uh, you ask uh, a very broad question, Steve, and I'll try to, uh, I may not give you the answer that, uh, that, that you would expect. We had a little bit of discussion about this over dinner tonight. Um, I, First of all, I, I think I would encourage that you look at that question uh, not only on the on the merits of is a, is a modified uh, product uh, helping or hurting or is it needed or not. Um, the science that we do in uh, genetically engineered products is uh, is very specific, but like so much of what we do, it's a very iterative. Uh, process and what we're doing today in that space is not what we were doing uh, 20 years ago. And there's uh, those of you in this room that know far more uh, in, in this field than I do. If I go back to the opening comments I made to try to provide a little context, uh, we struggle to feed 9 billion people today. We're going to struggle to feed the next 2 billion. I would probably argue that the genetically engineered food that we're producing today is probably not 
doing all that much uh, to feed 7 billion people. And some in my industry might uh, criticize me for saying that. But you're not using those products in Europe for the most part. They're only beginning to arrive in China. Uh, they're not yet in India. They're certainly not in Africa. So it's, it's the developed West that's largely using those products. And when you speak about corn, it's mostly going to produce animal protein, which is largely consumed in places like the United States and the West. So I would beg to differ that that's actually doing much right now to help lift that family out of a chronic uh, malnutrition state uh, in the undeveloped world. However, I believe in the science, and we believe in the science, and we participate in that space. And if we are going to feed uh, this world, and if we're going to help lift those people out of, out of uh, chronic malnutrition and poverty, we probably need to go through all the iterations that the science will go through to provide products that are going to help them. I don't guess that you're going to feed everybody with genetically engineered products. But my guess is there's going to be an awful lot that's learned as we go through that uh, progression. And whatever we're doing 25 years from now is something different than it is today. And I think the, the opposition to modified foods and genetic engineering is not so different than the uh, opposition that scientists and science have faced for all of time. And at the same time, I think it's good and I think it's healthy that we face the challenge and some level of opposition to be sure that the things that we do have gone through sufficient scrutiny and enough uh, oversight to be sure that the things that we do are the right things and we're not going to get it all right. And then the final comment I'll make is maybe a little more provocative. This debate that's raging around genetically engineered foods is happening in places where I would say, in my description, we're fat, dumb, and happy. It's a bunch of rich Westerners who have the luxury of trying to decide what we should or shouldn't do. And I'm pretty sure that family in that developing country who spends every waking moment, the time they get up in the morning till the time they go to bed at night, I'm pretty sure they're not thinking and worrying about, is the seed I plant an engineered product or not? Is the seed that I plant an organically produced product or not? They're worried about feeding their family. And so what I would hope and what I encourage, and, and those of you that are in that place in your lives where you're really thinking about the mark you're going to make on this world, is we need to think about how we're going to feed those people. And I, we consider in our company, it's not our place to decide who eats and who doesn't. Our place is in our company is to do everything we can to make sure that people have an opportunity uh, to advance and develop. And I think this, uh, this debate around genetically engineered foods is really, really important. And it's complicated. And it's not simple. And everybody has good intentions with the debates that they have. But we're going to have to find a way to take it to an outcome that's meaningful for everyone. 
not just the 20% of the planet who lives uh, with a roof over their head, plenty of food to eat, and uh, uh, education for their children. And, and I think that's the challenge for us. So when I go back and talk about this notion of cultural competency in our company, I think it's important for us in all sectors and all spaces because we've got to be able to look at some of these questions through the eyes and standing in the shoes of the people that need something that they don't have today. And we may not have the answer yet, but we're all going to have to work to find ways to do it. And we've got to find a way to engage them and bring them into the decision-making process rather than us sitting here in the West telling everybody else what, uh, what they need and what they should do. So, sorry to be somewhat uh, provocative and political about it, but that's a really big question, and I don't find I can give a single answer to it. But I will encourage you to think about it and uh, develop uh, your own perspectives and your own curiosity around the question 360 degrees. My question is uh, regarding uh, it's regarding logistics of uh, your operations. So you said clauses in 30 different countries, and you uh, you have around uh, uh, 20,000 people working for you. And this uh, seed industry, from my experience, is very sensitive. And uh, if we, if we, for example, if we compare a car um, maker, and when there's a final product, if you want to test the product by the safety, you sit in a room and you crash the car, and you read a bunch of numbers, and then you're convinced that your car is safe for you know re releasing it in the market. But seed, uh, if you want to test a product, you have uh, in India, uh, I think an industry a seed uh, company deals with around. 300 uh, varieties of all the crops. And testing them is, uh, the way you test them is, you go in a sunny day in the noon and you have to check them boots on ground and it's a very meticulous process of checking the phenotype of different crops and when it fails, the companies end up uh, paying millions of dollars as compensation to farmers. So my question is, uh, sitting on the top over here and delegating work to uh, an employee in India, how do you trust him uh, to carry out such uh, an important responsibility where uh, not just your sales in the year are dependent on it, but your, the entire trust of the company is dependent on a single person? That's a really good question. And my guess is you know a little bit about the seed industry. Um, so it's one of those industries where you can sell uh, $1,000 worth of seed and face uh, hundreds and hundreds, if not million-dollar liability uh, with the product. And uh, the colleagues sitting on the front row, uh, to give you an example, uh, a few years back, he successfully managed, along with his team and his colleagues, just that very issue, and they exist uh, around our space. This was a product claim in, uh, in the very south uh, part of Mexico. I think we sold $80,000 or $180,000 worth of seed. And we ended up settling uh, a problem of our own creation. This happened to be a, a seed mixture issue, so it wasn't a question of the team in Mexico uh, made the, uh, the, the wrong decision. So it's not a perfect... Uh, example of your question, but I think we ended up settling for several millions of dollars. Um, but it speaks to the question in, in our notion of scaling up, how do you build an organization that can be 
responsive to the needs of our customers locally? And how do we give enough autonomy and empowerment to our teams locally to serve those customers and yet protect uh, the organization from, from decisions that might actually harm the company? Um, it's one that keeps me awake at night, for sure. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, I, 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 I'm quite sure I can't give you an answer that, uh, that solves that because I think it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the question of how you scale the industry and how you scale the business. Companies, uh, that have tried to scale their business and not create a value in doing so did not set out to be, uh, uh, companies that block the development of their business locally. Probably there are a lot of people that are uh, deciding that we can't allow that decision to be taken in India because they don't know what we do here. And I'd like to think that for the most part, that's not typically with bad intentions. But as a company gets bigger, it gets harder and harder to, to, to control those kinds of things. So we've got checks and balances that we try to put in place. And we try to break those bigger decisions into bite-sized pieces uh, so that no one, including me as CEO, are ever placed in a position where they're having to make a decision that puts the company at great risk. Now, you've got to spend a lot of time and you've got to continue to kind of keep working at that because what you do with a company when we were half our size is different than what we do today. And I won't say the complexity of HM Close uh, is exponential from moving from 200 million to 400 million, but I can tell you the complexity of HM Close is not a linear uh, progression in the complexity to get to 400 million. And so we spend an awful lot of time thinking about how to get that next 200 and next 300 million dollars of revenue. And it's all around making sure there's enough empowerment to serve the customer's needs. Otherwise, we won't reach that revenue growth. And at the same time, making sure that we've built in the right uh, processes and checks and balances that no one has ever placed in the difficult position of having to make a decision that could truly damage the company in a material way. And we don't do that. Maybe the way I describe it is we don't do that as a first measure to protect the company. We do it first to protect our people. We don't want an employee of HM Close, a colleague of ours, to ever feel or be placed in a position where the weight of the future of the company is on their shoulders. It's not fair. And so we try to break it out, and it's different from one place to another in different aspects. And it's, it's, it's a very overly general description, but we want to take our decisions as close to the customer as possible. But that notion of teamwork and transparency and collaboration and accountability all work together to support that person in that place who's making that decision. And we'll see in time how much more scalable it is. But so far, it's working. There's a lot of food that goes to waste, and a lot of that comes from uh, regulations that are placed either on the growers and uh, oftentimes in uh, grocery stores as well, where food that's still edible and still has actual nutritional value, uh, they aren't legally allowed to pass it on to people who might need it. Does that come into play at all in where you try to think of 
how or perhaps where to develop your products next? So the question around food waste is a really good one. And, and, and one of the things that we cite as statistics a lot is there's that school of thought with, with people that will argue that we already grow enough food to feed the world, uh, but for the, the waste. The, the problem is, uh, yeah, we throw a lot of food away. If you, if you look at the statistics information around food waste, it's a Western, it's a rich Western country problem. There's going to be food, anytime you have a perishable product, you're going to have spoilage. And that's true in a developed country, but it's also true in a, in a, in a developing country. But when you look at the data, you will see a very disproportionate level of food waste in developed nations. And uh, uh, probably not an optimal level of food waste in, uh, in undeveloped countries. Otherwise, they wouldn't have uh, some of the challenges with famine and hunger that they do, and certainly nutrition uh, that they do. But it's, it's a Western problem. And it, but even before you see it at the retailer, if you saw the amount of in, in veg, fruits and vegetables in particular, if you saw the amount of waste and spoilage and non-marketable product that never makes it into the channel, you'd be astounded. And this has a lot to do with our standards. Uh, we, we, we buy with our eyes, not with our, uh, with our taste or our nutrition. And we're, we're fortunate enough to be rich enough where we can throw away probably two-thirds of what we produce. In the end, uh, it's all part of the economic uh, cycle of our country, and I'm not sure that that in itself is such a terrible uh, tragedy. Yeah, we could probably grow less and use fewer inputs that might be available to somebody else, but I don't think you're going to regulate your way through that. I think it's going to be an economic cycle that, that forces that. Uh, average person in America won't eat uh, a tomato that has a wind scar or cat face or blossom end rot, even though the rest of the fruit is perfectly edible. And, and, and this, is a, this is a luxury of a rich Western country. So I don't know the answer to that. What we do uh, in our business is, is work on plant breeding that adds more shelf life, more shipability, longer uh, time that can stay on the plant before harvest. And, and, and so we're working on those kinds of things, but I, I, I'm of the opinion that you're going to solve that. And it's just going to, in the end, they have to harvest the crop and it's going to go into the channel and uh, you're going to have the same waste. So it, it, this is more of a societal issue than... Uh, than a scientific or, or marketing issue from, from my perspective. Dr. I really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.